Luke 21, verse 37 and 38. Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Matthew chapter 21, verses 19 through 22. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. In all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Mark chapter 11, verses 19 through 25. When evening came, they would go out of the city As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Jesus answered and saying to them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mighty and majestic and awesome word. Thank you for the ministry of your beloved Son. We ask this morning that you would give us clarity of mind as we consider your word together. Pray that you would lead us to rightful conclusions, that we would understand this narrative, we would understand it in context, and that you would help us to then rightly apply the truths that we learn here in our daily walk with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, Luke 21, verses 37 and 38, provide us with a narrative note. It's almost as if we're getting some stage direction to a drama. We learn that what Jesus' pattern would be throughout this final week of ministry as he's around Jerusalem. Remember, everything that we're in from here on to the rest through our gospel harmony is going to be dealing with these last days of Jesus' ministry. And we become confronted with the fact that there's a whole lot of material from Jesus' last week of ministry. We're told in Luke 21 that evenings were spent out on the Mount of Olives. He was either out camping out with his disciples or perhaps they had some friends that lived in homes along the hilly slopes, but that's where they spent the evenings and days were spent, we're told, in the temple. Jesus was teaching in the temple and we're told that all the people were setting their alarm clocks, right? to get up early and come and see Jesus. They were sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him teach there in the temple. Remember, there were large crowds gathered around Jerusalem because of the time of year that this was. They were celebrating what? Passover, that's right. And so a whole slew of pilgrims had come into Jerusalem. People were there celebrating God's past deliverance of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus account 
many, many years before that. Now, at this moment, Jesus is still seeing some general popularity with the crowds. People are sitting at Jesus' feet. They're getting up early to come and listen to him. There's a general sense of approval by the general public around Jesus and his ministry. There's been no small stir among the people regarding Jesus' miracles, especially some of those miracles as of late, like the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so there's a whole lot of messianic expectation. In some senses, maybe the levels of expectation regarding the Messiah coming are at all times highs. The religious leaders, though, who are watching this at a distance, who have been plotting for Jesus' death for some time now, realize that they have to proceed with a whole lot of caution because they don't want to cause any trouble with the people. If they get some sort of big mob riot going on, not only would it maybe go against them, but that potential of maybe awakening the sleeping giant, which is Rome, could cause them some further problems. If they're seen to be as part of the disturbance, Rome is going to come in and squash a lot of the power and privilege and prestige that even the religious leaders were able to exercise even while being occupied by Rome. What's interesting is you'll see that the religious leaders will even stoop to the level of accusing Jesus of trying to incite something against Rome in order to try to see him eventually crucified. So they'll do anything in their efforts to murder Jesus. Now, by the end of this week, we're going to see the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and lawyers all succeeding in what are their efforts. They're going to work underhandedly to arrest Jesus. They're going to give him a sham of a trial. They're going to exert pressure on the governmental leaders. They're going to incite the crowds to cry out for the robber, Barabbas, and ask for Jesus to be crucified. The religious leaders are going to see their plans come to fruition. But as we're all aware, even through their maneuverings, even through their manipulations, Jesus is going to fulfill his mission. Ultimately, we discover that while the people wanted a Savior, Jesus was not the Savior that they wanted. And unlike Batman, he wasn't even the Savior they deserved. Right? He was a Savior, though, that both they and we all desperately need. Because you see, a new exodus would be inaugurated. A better freedom was about to be extended. Because a more cruel tyrant than Egyptian taskmasters had to be dealt with. A more heavy burden than straw and bricks needed to be lifted. A more powerful being than Pharaoh needed to be defeated. Jesus came that his people might be freed from sin and death and Satan. And nothing would get in the way of him accomplishing his mission. Now, Jesus is meeting with the cross so near. I mean, we're talking, we're we're in the early parts of the week. We're talking Monday, Tuesday of the Passion Week, right? Friday is on the horizon. It is very, very near. We know that Jesus knows it's coming. Jesus is given ample opportunity to talk about his coming death. He knows what's on the horizon. And knowing this, what would you expect Jesus to be doing? I mean, if you knew that your death was nigh and you knew how this was going to take place, what kind of preparations would you be making? You knew all the political maneuvering going on. You knew all this plotting and scheming. What would you do in such a case? Isn't it amazing that in these days leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, we find him doing what he was always doing. He was about his father's business. He's going into the temple during the day. He's teaching the people. He's going out into the wilderness, up onto the mountain at night to rest. He's ministering to people up to the very end of his ministry. What love and grace. 
Remember, this is not only providing the general populace with further opportunity to come to faith in him, but he's also providing all of these religious leaders who have been stacked against him for so long opportunity to investigate his messianic credentials a little bit further. Let's see if this guy really is who he says that he is. And we'll note together in coming weeks a whole lot of dialogue that's going to happen between the religious leaders and Jesus. But it becomes evident that their dialogue, their questions... All these interactions are not coming from a heart that's truly seeking to figure out if Jesus really is the Messiah. They had already made up their minds that they were going to reject him no matter what. All they're trying to do through the conversation with Jesus is trap Jesus. They hope to get him to say something that they can use against him in the coming days. They're yearning for Jesus' death. Now, with this in mind, we see how poignant the cursing of the fig tree fits in the narrative. If you consider all of that context... Now Jesus cursing this fig tree, which we spent a few weeks ago, we, we looked at the first half of this. We saw how the cursing of this fig tree was meant by Jesus to describe something about the condition of the Israelites, of, of the Jews during his ministry. Remember, Jesus is coming towards Jerusalem, one of these trips back and forth, and he notices in the distance, we're told, a lone fig tree. And there upon this fig tree, what draws his attention to the tree is that it is lush. It's green. It's got leaves all over it. Now, we're told that it wasn't the time for figs. It wasn't the time of year when which figs were produced. But it also wasn't a time of year in which fig trees produce foliage. <laughs> so here we have this fig tree looking beautiful with all these green leaves all over it. And so Jesus approaches the fig tree looking for figs and he finds none. At that point, Jesus curses the tree. He curses it and says that you're going to be barren Forever. This was a case of false advertising. The tree had made an outlandish promise through its foliage, but it failed to make good on that promise. So Jesus curses the tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Mark tells us the disciples heard what Jesus said, and then they continued on into Jerusalem. Jesus gets into Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. Remember, he finds all the money changers and all the the bazaar there. They're selling animals for sacrifices and all the rest. Remember, there's nothing wrong with selling animals and all of that, but just not in the temple, right? Not here. Remember, the outer court is where this would have been going on. The court of the Gentiles, the only place in which the Gentiles, those outside of Israel, would be permitted to come into. So in this very place where Jesus says, my father's house is to be known as a house of prayer for all the peoples, for all the nations. You've made it into a robber's den. You've not only been a distraction to them, but you've shown them that what you're really after is money. And so Jesus comes in and Literally, cleans house. He does some spring cleaning, right? Jesus wouldn't stand by and allow this deception to continue. He uncovers the hypocrisy, exposes it for what it is. And all of a sudden, we see what Mark is doing. He, he tells us, Jesus curses the tree, then they can go into Jerusalem. Jesus cleanses the temple. He comes back out, and then we find out the rest of the story, that the tree has withered from the roots up. That tree was meant to be symbolic of judgment coming to Israel for their unbelief regarding Jesus. Mark explains that it's not until the next morning. Probably what we're talking about here is Tuesday morning of Passion Week. And upon walking past the same fig tree, the disciples noticed that it had withered from the roots up. Now, Matthew, if you remember, we just read this, recorded that the fig tree withered immediately. Jesus pronounces the curse and the tree withered immediately. This has caused some amount of objection. 
Which is it, is the question. Did it wither immediately, or was it the next morning that it withered? Which one is it? That's the question from some. However, I don't think this is a case of either or. Both statements are true. When Jesus pronounced the curse, the curse took effect immediately, and the tree began to wither. However, the disciples didn't notice the full effects of that withering until the following morning. Now, is this still within the realm of immediacy? Well, to answer that question, I just want to help, help you kind of like think through this with me. How long does it take for a tree to wither? What's your experience? I mean, if, if a tree begins to die of old age, how long does it take for the tree to completely die? We've got some interesting specimens in our, the back property of our church here. We've got some older trees, and we've seen parts of the trees start to die, and we've had to go up and cut off branches and this, that, and the other. And the process continues, because there's still other parts of the tree that are not dead yet, right? They're still green. There's leaves on them. We don't want to kill the whole tree when there's still something good about the tree, and we like having some nice trees back there. But we find it over a long period of time. So it might take a tree years to die of just old age. But you might ask, well, what about disease? Well, that's true. I mean, a tree can contract a disease. But most tree diseases still take months to kill a tree. You say, well, when somebody deliberately did something like in the old days they call it, like salted a tree? Or today we would say use a herbicide on a tree. What about that? Well, even in those cases, we're usually talking weeks for the tree to, to die. And it's a gradual thing over that period of time. No matter which way you slice this, no matter which way you cut it, this is an immediate miracle. For this tree to have withered from the roots up within 24 hours would have been immediate. Any way you talk about it. Mark has provided us with the play-by-play so we don't miss the symbolic meaning of what's going on here with this tree being cursed. Jesus meant it as an object illustration of what would be encountered in Jerusalem. Israel was a leafy plant that boasted great things. But when he came to look and find fruit, there was none. There was no genuine fruit being produced. It was ultimately barren, void of fruit, and therefore it was only ripe for judgment. But it's the swiftness and completeness of this judgment that strikes the disciples as odd. The disciples are astonished that this is the very same tree. Put yourself there the day before. Imagine a lush green tree, right? Jesus says, no one's going to eat fruit from you again. They walk on into the temple. The next day, as they're walking into Jerusalem, they go by the same tree. And there it looks like one of those, you know, ghost trees out of some horror flick, right? It's just, there's nothing. It's just dead everywhere. There's not a scrap of life about it. It elicits their attention. Understand that Jesus' curse didn't necessitate an immediate death to the tree. I mean, his curse is that no one will eat fruit from you again. So you could have done that, just leave it green forever. Just never produces fruit. You could have done it that way. Why this immediate thing? Why such a stark, miraculous occurrence? Mark tells us that it was Peter who spoke up, drawing Jesus' attention to the tree. He says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree, which you cursed, it dried up. Matthew records the general question among the disciples. How did the fig tree immediately dry up? How did this happen? And it's now 
in the aftermath of having seen Jesus' prayer answered right away in an undeniably miraculous way, that the disciples are now presented from Jesus with a lesson on the power of prayer. At this point, we learn that there is yet more for us to learn from this fig tree. In the sermon entitled Mountain Moving Prayer, I want to consider two principles of prayer that Jesus teaches us here in this text. The first is, we're going to consider the limitations that are presented by us to prayer. We're going to look at four things together. Limitations presented by us to prayer. And then after that, we'll consider the possibilities available to us in prayer. First, the limitations presented by us to prayer. And then secondly, the possibilities available to us in prayer. We'll get these each in turn. We'll first look at this event and consider what is it that stands in the way of our prayers being effective? What's the difference between effectual prayer and prayer that is not effectual? What limitations do we bring to the equation of prayer? We'll talk about four things. First of all, there's the problem of prayerlessness. Well, that kind of seems obvious, right? One of the problems in prayer is if we don't pray. That's a problem. A lack of prayer altogether. Many miss out on what they otherwise might be given because they just fail to pray at all. James 4 makes it very plain. 4 verse 2, the second part of it. You do not have because you do not ask. How many of us have encountered that in just practical living? How many times as a result of having asked, you receive something? If you had not asked, you would not have received something, right? The difference was just asking. It was there for you to have, but you had to ask. And without asking, it would not be given. But with asking, it was there. It was to be given. James 4 says, you do not have because you do not ask. I wonder how often we encounter trials and difficulties that seem to, don't, seem to not go away. And we, can't, we keep scratching our head able to figure out why. And one of the simplest things is staring us in the face. Have we sincerely prayed about it? Have we sincerely spent time praying about the matter? You see, prayerlessness says so much about us. It betrays a lack of desperation. Someone who does not pray does not see their own need. It doesn't see the fact that they are in need. That they are individuals that need the ongoing work of the Lord in their hearts. Prayerlessness betrays an independent spirit. It forgets that we're all dependent upon the Lord. Many times we just go about doing our things our way without even stopping to spend time in prayer, asking the Lord's blessing, asking for the Lord for direction. Prayerlessness betrays a lack of love for God. How can we neglect communion with our Lord? If a man says that he loves his wife, but he never spends any time talking to her, wouldn't we doubt his love? So it ought to be the case. Those who love God must be in communion with Him. Prayerlessness also betrays wrong priorities. Do we allow the urgent to crowd out the important? Do we get so busy going from task after task that we neglect to spend the most important time in prayer before the Lord? I seriously sometimes wonder how many things would have been solved in the day had I just spent some more time in prayer before the day had begun. I wonder how many fires I put out And perhaps the reason why I'm having to put out so many fires is because I haven't spent enough time on my knees before the Lord. Encourage you. Part of our problem might be just being prayerless. 
ultimately being prayerless betrays that we've forgotten that we're in a spiritual warfare. If our battle truly is not with flesh and blood, but with spiritual forces, if that's the case, then we need to engage in spiritual warfare. You don't, you don't do spiritual warfare in the flesh. So you must be engaged. If you're engaged in spiritual battle, you must be engaged in prayer. Isn't it interesting that in the, the armor of God passage in Ephesians 6, that prayer takes up such a prominent place at the end of the description of the armor of God? I'm going to encourage everyone, if you're not already, to make use of the email prayer list that Kemper sent out every week. We appreciate you guys doing that. Steve also uh, includes a prayer and evangelism quote. And I just grabbed this from this morning's prayer sheet. And this is a great quote on prayer from M.E. Andros. When prayer has become secondary or incidental, it has lost its power. Those who are conspicuously men of prayer are those who use prayer as they use food or air or light or money. Is prayer like that to you? Is prayer as natural as breathing? Is prayer as natural as eating? Is prayer as natural as exchanging money? Prayerlessness is the first limitation presented to us in prayer. The passage that's before us, though, centers in, most of the passage deals with this issue, and that is faithlessness. A second limitation is faithlessness. We might describe this as lack of belief. Now, this passage begins by the disciples being astonished. They're astonished that this tree has withered like it has. Now, their astonishment itself tells us something about what they believe. Their amazement and awe is an expression of their own unbelief. And therefore, Jesus' words, while positive, also seem to have a note of rebuke and correction in them as well. Have you ever been surprised or perhaps offended by someone else's surprise? Ever been there? Someone's surprised and you're kind of surprised or offended that they're surprised. It's like if your child is surprised that you cooked them such a fabulous meal. What does it instantly make you think? Well, am I not usually capable of producing fabulous meals for you? Or a coworker who's surprised that you got a raise. Well, do you not think I earned or deserved the raise that I got? Or a student in one of your classes who's surprised that you got a good grade on a test. What, do you think I'm not intelligent? Surprise indicates something has happened that was unexpected. In some cases, it provides insight into what a person normally thinks. So we might say that Jesus is surprised at the disciples' surprise. Their astonishment over the fig tree demonstrates that they, have a, they don't have a firm grasp on just how powerful prayer is. Their faith is small. It's like Jesus is saying, wither a fig tree. Come on, boys. Given faith, mountains can be picked up and moved and cast into the sea. Right? You're surprised by this? This has got you astonished? This is not the only time that Jesus chides his disciples for their weak faith. These are the same men that watched Jesus perform countless miracles. And here they are, astonished by the fig tree. But before we start ragging on those disciples, how often is that us? How often have we forgotten the miraculous ways in which God has worked, either through revelation and scripture or in our own personal experience? We've seen God move mountains. And meanwhile, we get presented with a new little hill and we seem to crumble under the consideration of it. This is not the only time that Jesus would chide his disciples for their weak faith. 
Here's just three examples. Matthew 8. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus Himself was asleep. And they came to Him and woke Him and said, Save us, Lord! We're perishing! He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? He got up, rebuked the wind and sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed. They said, What kind of man is this that even the wind and waves obey him? Matthew 14, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and he began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? They got into the boat and the wind stopped. Matthew 16, Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, he said that because we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that we have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves and the five thousand? And how many baskets full you picked up afterward? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000? And how many large baskets full you picked up? Come on, boys. Issue isn't that I'm enough bread. Using this as an illustration to talk about the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus commands his disciples here have faith in God. That's how it starts. Have faith in God. He sees as an opportunity to teach the disciples what believing prayer can do. Remember, this is the very thing that he's rebuking Israel for lacking. And that's faith. He's telling his disciples, believe. Do you not have faith? Let's make this practical. If there are moments in which you are praying, I'm sure you've all had these moments, I know I have. Which you're in the middle of praying and doubt floods your mind about whatever it is you're praying about. What does that tell us? If doubt is present in the middle of our praying, what does that tell us? Well, there's a couple of different things it could tell us. Perhaps it tells us that we don't believe God can help. Maybe it says that we have some lack of understanding of God's ability. Or perhaps it's that we don't trust God will do what is best. We Doubt his goodness. Or perhaps it's just that we think that what we're asking for isn't within God's will. It might be a knowledge issue. What can we do in any of those cases? Well, if it's doubt about God's ability, we need to spend time contemplating God's power. We need to spend time in the Scriptures meditating upon the miraculous power of God. We need to meditate upon God's greatness. We need to familiarize ourselves with what the Almighty, El Shaddai, what El Shaddai can do, what God Almighty can do. The famous hymn, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. O my soul, praise Him, for He is thy health and salvation. All ye who hear, now to His temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. 
Praise the Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. Surely His goodness and mercy here daily attend thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do, who with His love doth befriend thee. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Verse 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? When we pray, it's never a question of God's ability. God is able. And there is such comfort that we draw as God's children, knowing that God is El Shaddai, that God is God Almighty, that God is all-powerful. And since He has all power and all authority invested in Himself, that means any power or authority that we come up against has been delegated to them. He is the one that is over all power and all authority. All power and authority is subject to Him. Arthur Pink says, No prayer is too hard for Him to answer. No need is too great for Him to supply. No passion too strong for Him to subdue. No temptation too powerful for Him to deliver us from. No misery too deep for Him to relieve. Maybe your problem isn't in thinking about God's ability. Maybe your problem is in thinking about God's goodness. Maybe you understand God is great, but you fail to reckon rightly with His goodness. Not just that God is transcendent, but that God is imminent. He is here. He cares. He loves. He has mercy. He has grace. You see, we need to familiarize ourselves with God's love and grace and mercy. His loving kindness, which is everlasting. God is Himself the highest good and He is abundant in goodness. Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Matthew 7, 11, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give what is good to those who ask Him. Psalm 84.11 For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. Romans 8.28 For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And then in verse 32 He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not with Him also freely give us all things? Great quote from J.I. Packer. God is good to all in some ways and to some in all ways. Say it again. God is good to some... I'm sorry. God is good to all in some ways and to some... In all ways. What is he saying there? God's general grace and goodness is extended to everyone. Everyone is a partaker of the rains that fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God shows goodness to the entire earth. And yet, he shares all of his goodness with his children. How will he withhold his goodness from his children? Our God is powerful, our God is able, and our God is willing to do what is good toward His children.
When doubts arise in your mind on either of those levels, we need to run to the Scriptures and contemplate God's greatness, contemplate God's goodness, dispel those doubts with the Word of God. Third category. What if it's doubt about whether or not what I'm asking for is within God's will? We certainly need to learn from God what pleases Him. And we need to learn how to content ourselves with what He has providentially brought our way. There's two distinct ways in which the will of God is used in Scripture. There is what we refer to as God's sovereign will, description of everything that happens. If it happened, it was God's will in this sense, in His sovereign will. If it happened, it was part of God's sovereign will. And there's also what we refer to as God's moral will, that which God has revealed to be in keeping with godliness, holiness, righteousness, goodness, these sorts of things. Now, we cannot change and we cannot know, unless prophesied by God, what God's sovereign will is going to be before it happens. Therefore, you can't make decisions based upon God's sovereign will because you don't know and He hasn't told you and it's not for you to know. And if you try to figure it out, that's like, Going to diviners or soothsayers, which is prohibited in Scripture, right? So, these are the Lord's. They're not revealed to us. The only thing we would know about future events are those things which He's prophesied and provided us in His revealed Word. So, how do we interact with God's sovereign will? We learn to be content with whatever God deems to take place. We learn contentment with what God brings to pass in our lives. That's one thing we need to learn in prayer, learning contentment, whether rich or poor, whether in happy times or sad times. Learning contentment is an important lesson for us to learn. But another thing that should fuel our prayers are, is knowing God's moral will, what He has revealed to us about Himself. We can study God's Word and learn what pleases Him. Bible study has a direct impact on our prayer life. Prayer and Bible study should be hand in hand. They should be happening simultaneously. They should be going on and informing one another. It informs our praying and it builds our faith, our believing. We can pray with confidence if we know this is what God wants. If we know that, if we know this is what God wants, we can pray with absolute confidence. 1 John 5, 14, 15. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will... He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we'll have the requests that we have asked from Him. Faithlessness can be a hindrance to prayer. We need to confront it by realizing who God is and what God wants and desires. There's a third obstacle, a third hindrance to prayer. It comes up at the end of Mark's account, but it's kind of present in Matthew and Mark in another way anyway. And that is unforgiveness or lack of love. Lack of love towards others, unforgiveness towards others, hinders our prayers. Jesus' exhortation to faith reminds us of the Godward element of prayer, while Jesus' concluding words regarding our responsibility to forgive others reminds us to be other-minded in our praying. This is a summary of the law, right? You sum it all up. Love to God and love to others. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like that greatest first foremost commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. 
Let's make comes out of this. We have in ourselves no inherent right to be heard by God. All we have is owing to God his grace, his unmerited favor. So unless we forgive our fellows freely, R.A. Cole says, it shows that we have no consciousness of the grace that we ourselves have received in need. And so it shows that we're ultimately expecting to be heard on our own merits, which cannot be. We're not heard on the basis of our merits, but on the basis of Jesus Christ's merits. You see, ultimately, all sin is against God. And if he has forgiven us of our sin, how can we resist extending forgiveness to others? The heart that prays, Hendrickson says, must be filled with love that forgives. The heart that prays must be filled with love that forgives. It's interesting throughout all of this, the the use here are all plural. When you all pray, mountains can be moved, all of the rest. I think it's a reminder that prayer, while appropriate, to be done in our closets, by ourselves, not, you know, heralding the trumpet, look at me praying and all that stuff, which is just empty and foolish and hypocrisy. But nonetheless, prayer is an expression of corporate worship. There is something that happens when we pray together that really does thwart a whole lot of selfishness, doesn't it? Like, it really does. It forces us to consider others. It forces us to consider community issues. It's an encouragement for us to forgive one another. It's an encouragement for us to agree together. And it helps against, as I said, selfishness. Undertaking prayer together can, can help us if we're lacking love or struggling with forgiving others. Okay, so I've given three hindrances. Well, what's the fourth? Well, in every good multiple choice test, you have to have None of the above. So that's what this is. My none of the above category. And I'm going to describe this as lack of knowledge. This is my question. I'm, cert- I'm certain that at least one of you in here, as I go through those three categories, goes, check, check, check. Why do I still not have an answer? I trust God's able. I trust God is good. And I've submitted this to his sovereign will. And I believe it's within his moral will. It's something that pleases him. Then why is he saying wait? Or why is he saying No. What about those times when we persisted in prayer and we prayed believing in God's greatness and we've trusted in His, in His goodness and we've done so in harmony with other Christians and they've been praying, yet it seems like our prayers fall on deaf ears. How do we understand when God says wait or God says no? How do we understand this? Using mountain imagery presented to us here in the text, what do we do when the mountain or the obstacle that we're considering, that we're encountering, is not removed? And we've checked ourselves. And we've examined ourselves thoroughly. And we don't see anything wrong on our end. Well, let me ask another question. Why do we have a love-hate relationship with mountains anyway? Why don't we just level every mountain that exists today? We've got explosive technology now, right? Why don't we just blow them to pieces? Level the map. Well, you say, well, that'd be expensive, Jess. Okay, yeah, sure. Maybe so. But I think there's further reasons that people would give. For example, there's many things that we can learn from mountains. Mountains remind us of our smallness, don't they? Of our frailty. Mountains remind us of God's creative genius and beauty. Why do people climb mountains? Some sort of exhilaration that comes from 
such a task. People who have climbed mountains talk about appreciating life in general all the more. Something about the struggle, a man struggling to persevere to the summit of a mountain, brings him to greater appreciation for all of life. Certainly you've all heard of Mount Everest, right? Located on the border between China and Nepal, it's the tallest mountain in the world. It rises some 29,000 feet above sea level. That's over five and a half miles high. While the hike up that mountain to its summit is not one of the most treacherous ones as it relates to vertically going, it's just a, a, a nice gingerly hike, um, the problem with it is the weather conditions that people face in trying to scale the mountain. Many people have died trying to reach its summit, yet people continue to scale the mountain. You see, strength is often the result of much conflict. If every mountain were leveled, what would we learn? How would we learn some of the lessons that God intends for us to learn? How would we appreciate the life that God has given us? The truth is that sometimes God intends for us to face and struggle with a mountain for purposes that are His own. And that's why I say here, lack of knowledge. Lack of foresight. Lack of ability to see the bigger picture. We're so honed in on this moment because of our finitude. But God is infinite and He's over the entire story. He sees beginning and end and everything in between. Think about some of the best movies you've ever seen. Or the best books you've ever read. Some of the tremendous joy of the ending is found only through conflict and obstacle in the middle. It's seeing the tremendous reversal at the end that usually just excites us. We can be sure of this. If we're trusting in God's greatness and His goodness, if we're praying submitted to His will, His sovereign will, and praying in accordance with His moral will, and for whatever reason God hasn't removed the mountain, He has a good reason. We'll give you assured of that. God has a good reason. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Can I give you two examples from the Scriptures? How about Paul's thorn? 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. God decided not to remove this thorn from Paul's life. Because he wanted to make a more perfect display of his own strength in the weak vessel that Paul was. I want to display my great strength in your weakness, Paul. So, no. Another important example. How about Jesus' cup? Mark 14. Jesus is praying, saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Did Jesus doubt God the Father's ability? All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
You see, God the Father had a marvelous plan to display his grace and righteousness in such a way that it would be seen in an unparalleled way in Jesus' crucifixion. The point is this. God might be doing something that we lack knowledge to appreciate, maybe just at present, or maybe throughout our entire life we'll never appreciate it. But if we know that God is great and God is good and God loves his children, then we can trust him that if the mountain hasn't been removed, he has a good reason. Ephesians 3, how about this? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or even think. According to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Isn't it wonderful that we serve a God who is able to answer us beyond what we can ask or think? More than we can articulate, more than we can even think, God is able to deal with us on that level. Well, we've considered the limitations presented to us by, in prayer. Now let's consider, secondly, possibilities available to us in prayer. Possibilities available to us in prayer. And i just split this up into two quick points. First is this, the withering of fig trees. The withering of fig trees. Why did Jesus perform this miracle? Well, we've already stated that it was an illustration of what was going on in unbelieving Israel. He wanted to plant this illustration in their minds. Why did the tree, though, have to wither so quickly? Well, it's the swiftness of this miracle that then becomes useful to Jesus in teaching another principle, and that is this principle regarding prayer and believing prayer. He meant this to provide his disciples with a small teachable moment about the power of believing prayer. That's why. You see, seeing results from lesser moments builds faith for what, for when we're faced with bigger moments. All moments are given by God's hand and should be used for His glory. You know, I'm all of almost 35 years old, right? I, I know I'm young pup to some of you guys, right? Some of you I'm a little bit older. Depends on where you are in the line of 35, right? But I can even look back over my life and say, some of the toughest things I've been through have prepared me for things that I'm experiencing now. I would have loved to have removed those difficulties back there, but having gone through them prepared me for now. God has been working through all of those events to prepare me for the moment that I'm up against now. I think about David. How is David able to face Goliath? Well, he's able to remember that the same God who delivered me from the lion and the bear will take care of me against this Philistine. He learned lessons while he was a shepherd boy. We can all learn lessons throughout our life. God is the wisest parent ever. He trains and disciplines his children perfectly. He gives them ample opportunity to learn from lesser trials so that they're prepared for greater ones. You see, withering a fig tree, Jesus describes, is just the tip of the iceberg of what's possible in believing prayer. Secondly, the uprooting of mountains. Let's consider these larger things. You know, when we consider Jesus calming the storm, we've been encouraged to consider how we ought to respond to the storms of life when they come, right? Jesus calmed the storm. How do you respond to the storms of life when they come? But the passage before us this morning asks us, how do we deal with mountains? How do you deal with mountains? Mountains often serve as natural boundaries between countries because of their ability to impede travel, right? There are many countries, the borders between them, Mount Everest is a good example, right between China and Nepal. Why? 
because nobody's going over that anytime easy, right? By the time you got done, you're completely worn out and you could be killed easily, right? So it, mountains provide a wonderful physical obstacle to movement. But Jesus says that the one who prays in faith, believing, not doubting, can say to this mountain, be lifted and be thrown into the sea. You see, in prayer we address the creator, the controller, the sustainer, the king of all mountains. So we can have confidence that when we're praying in complete confidence in God, that no mountain stands as an obstacle too great to be tackled. Or better said, no mountain is is beyond God's ability to pick up and body slam into the sea, right? As imposing and as tough and as strong as mountains are, they are nothing to God. Maybe we just have to consider this in, in a terms of uh, scale. Maybe we can illustrate this by use of the ant. Scriptures use the ant for other illustrations, so why not use it here? And since we live in Texas, we can't just pick any ant. We've got to pick the fire ant. And I'm sure that all of us have had the wonderful privilege of learning why it's called the fire ants. They can make some impressive hills if they're left alone. An army of ants can work together to build a massive structure. On the ant level, a mountain. But it only takes one quick kick. Or one quick scoop of the hand, which I don't recommend. And you could cast the whole thing into a pool like that. Expending that much energy, right? If one of our children then came up to us and go, Wow, Daddy! That's amazing you did that! On some level, we'd laugh. Like, is that too hard for me to do? You find that difficult? You find that impressive? What do you think of me? You think I'm not up to the task of moving anthills? I wonder how often that's the Lord's response with us. Oh God, this mountain is so huge. And He looks down from the heavens where He does whatever He pleases. And He goes, Son, daughter, what are you talking about? It's in my hand. I can pick it up and toss it into the sea without even expending an ounce of energy. Mountains don't pose any difficulty to God. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Micah 1, 3, and 4, Behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place. Listen to this. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him. The valleys will split like wax before fire, like water poured down a steep place. We all know that in Jesus' own ministry, He walked on water, created bread and fish, He stilled winds and waves, He cast out demons, He healed the sick, He healed the blind, He healed the lame, He healed the lepers, He raised the dead. But there is no record of Jesus actually picking up a mountain and casting it into the sea. Although that would have been pretty cool. But He never actually did that. Nor is there any record of any of Jesus' disciples ever actually picking up any mountains and casting them into the sea. Nor am I aware of anyone ever having picked up a mountain and actually cast it into the sea. So, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, we can note this, that throughout church history, Christians have prayed in faith and seen mountainous difficulties removed. In this case, it's the metaphor that has more meaning than the actual. How many mountains have we really been up against that God has done this very thing for us? You see, in human strength, very little can be done, but when the disciple trusts God wholeheartedly and without doubting, great things are then possible, Leon Moore says. 
I want to close with the question, why is it that this passage in Mark, I want to turn to this, return to this idea, verse 25. Why does Mark end his account of this with this statement, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. We know that Matthew has a statement like that in his gospel, not in this place, but in Jesus' model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus makes a very similar statement there. But why has Mark included it here? And why did Jesus say this on this occasion? We're not told explicitly, so just curious. It's kind of curious placement. Sometimes we'll find verses like these, and it's like, why is it there? Like, how does it fit? Obviously, he's talking about prayer here, but why append it to this text? Why have it here? One of the thoughts that crossed my mind is, Perhaps it's because the tallest mountain or the greatest obstacle that we face is how we might be forgiven. What is the greatest mountain that we all face? Maybe how it is that we could be forgiven or how we might extend forgiveness to others. I mean, this is what's so crazy about our hypocrisy. We're all in need of forgiveness, and meanwhile, we don't want to extend forgiveness to anyone. Right? We're the most miserly with forgiveness, but when it's flip around, we want it on the heap, heap loads, right? But how can we be made willing to forgive others? I would posit that the only way you can become willing to forgive others is if you yourself have first been forgiven. There's been some debate as to what mountain Jesus is referring to. He says, this mountain. If you pray believing without doubt, you can say to this mountain, be uprooted and be cast into the sea. What is this mountain? Well, it seems likely it's one of two choices, really. If that demonstrative pronoun, this, is the interesting one. I mean, you just said, say to a mountain. But he says, this mountain. So just question. And so there's always a flurry of ideas about which mountain it could be. But I think two are prevalent here. One is he's on the Mount of Olives, right? That's where this tree is. So he could be referring to this mountain, the mountain that we're standing on. Or he could be referring to across the valley would have been the Temple Mount. Maybe he's looking over there and he's pointing and saying this mountain. Now, either way, the main point is what we've already described here is that he's using proverbial language to say that the impossible is possible through believing prayer. That's what he's saying. The impossible is possible through believing prayer. What you think is impossible, God can do. That's what he's saying. However, if Jesus was pointing to the Temple Mount when he was saying this, we may also see a further judgment against the unbelieving Jewish community. Remember, due to their hardness of hearts, they've rejected Jesus, and they're functioning more like obstacles. Oddly, strangely enough, ironically enough, the temple and its mount is acting more like an obstacle to Jesus' ministry than an aid. <laughs> All of that religious establishment that is Judaism at this point are putting themselves up against Jesus, acting like an obstacle to Jesus. And if Jesus is referencing this mountain at this case, it makes for an interesting Indication. Because by faith, the mountain in which religious worship was centered was all about to shift. No longer would the all show and no substance religion of the Jewish religious leaders hold sway. Focus is going to move from the Temple Mount to a little hill called Golgotha, where Jesus would be lifted up on a cross. And when Jesus climbed the hill named Golgotha, and there he laid down his life as a sacrifice, 
He uprooted and cast the mountain standing between us and relationship with God into the sea. He removed the obstacle. What obstacle barred us access to God the Father? Sin. And Christ, because He died and laid down His life as a, as a sacrifice for sinners, paid the price for our forgiveness. He's the one that allows the Father to remove sins as far as east is from the west from us. And then He rose from the dead and He ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty where He intercedes for us even to this day. You see, Jesus is the ultimate mountain mover. He's the one who removed the ultimate obstacle between us and God. Maybe we could call it a Mount Sin. Jesus picked up Mount Sin and cast it into the sea. And if he has done that with Mount Sin, then he can surely take whatever hills we encounter in this life and deal with them for our good and for his glory. It's that argument from greater to lesser. If God has given us the best gift, his son, then certainly he'll give us all the other gifts, right? He's given us the best. If he's given us the best, then certainly all the rest are easily given to us. Olympic events understand this principle, right? Finish with this. Olympic events understand this principle, right? So if I'm able to jump over a high jump bar that's six feet tall, after that they don't go, now can you jump over a one foot bar? Can you do that now? Don't make me jump over a one foot bar. It's a six foot bar. Obviously I can do a one foot bar, right? If I just lifted 400 pounds over my head, which I can't do, then they're going to say, hey, can you lift this 100 pound weight over your head? Obviously. I mean, then the greater thing, certainly I can do the lesser thing. Well, if the Mount Everest of spiritual reality, sin, has been dealt with by Jesus Christ, don't you think God can deal with whatever mountains we might encounter in our lives? Look to Jesus in faith and you'll experience and receive mountain moving power. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning, the opportunity to learn and grow and consider prayer itself. It's fitting that we pray at the end of all preaching, and certainly all preaching itself should be bathed in prayer, because we know that it's not by eloquence of words that anyone is convinced of anything. It's by work of your spirit. A spiritual reality is going on here. A spiritual exchange is taking place. We ask that you would soften hearts and cause hearts to receive truth. We ask that you would cause dead, spiritually dead people to be made alive, to be given spiritual life, eternal life. We recognize that we're engaged in a spiritual warfare in which prayer needs to be like the air we breathe. Thank you for having removed the greatest mountain that we're up against, the mountain that separated us from you, the obstacle that was between us and you, and that is our sin. Thank you that you have cast that into the sea through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And if you have done that, then we, can, we know that we can trust you with all other matters. Help us to take your perspective on. And so next time we look at Mount Everest from the base of that mountain, may you transport us to the heavens and have us look down upon it from your perspective and remember that nothing is too difficult for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.